Samson, come here. Come here. Come on. Up. Right. Come on. What's going on here? And welcome to another edition of the AA Team. I'm Ken Fang, along with Stephen Nagishi. Glad you could be with us on another great edition of the Barroom Network. Uh, it's a rarity for us because usually we do a show every two weeks, but uh, today we just uh, we did our, we decided to do our show uh, after the last week. And uh, Stephen, uh, glad to be back again, and uh, we have uh, quite a few things to discuss today. Absolutely, Ken. Uh, you know. Uh, we're glad to be uh, back on air again. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, this is the first time we're doing consecutively, uh, but uh, we do have a lot of things to talk about, and uh, we do have a stellar guest uh, uh, joining us on our show as well. And who do we have tonight, Stephen? Okay, so we have, uh, first up, after we do our uh, uh, monologue, uh, we have Shehan Jayaraja, who is a, uh, a terrific uh, college football writer, formerly working for Dave Campbell's uh, Texas Football, which is a uh, Bible and an institution in that state. Uh, he's been working with CBS Sports as a college football writer since uh, fall of this year. And uh, we are very excited to talk about college football and his uh, upbringing uh, as a, uh, a Southeast Asian uh, working in an industry that uh, doesn't have a lot of uh, diversity as we discuss with uh, Michael Chan uh, in the previous shows. And uh, who is our second guest? So <clears throat> Ken and I have been uh, talking a lot about the uh, uh, Chinese tennis uh, uh, Peng Shui who has been uh, missing. And then uh, she's been speaking what seems to be somewhat of a, a communist uh, government uh, surveillance. Um, We've been very, very vocal about it, both of us being uh, Asian-Americans. I am a Japanese-American. Ken is a, uh, a Taiwanese-American about the uh, the upcoming Winter Olympics and its uh, impact, um, as well as the, the Summer Olympics in Japan this year that was widely criticized in spite of the, uh, the COVID uh, uh, concerns, uh, yet the uh, IOC forged on. Uh, Professor Jules Boykoff from the Pacific University, who's been a very outspoken critic about the IOC and the Olympics, uh, he's going to be joining us. Uh, he normally talks to, you know, CNN, Al Jazeera, and BBC, you know, the uh, more somewhat uh, high-end news media. But uh, he is uh, lucky enough to uh, join us to talk about the uh, his views on the IOC corruption and the Olympics and and its future. 
And in addition, I believe that he's, he's joining us from halfway around the world, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know. I I think he might be from uh, his home in Oregon, you know, where Pacific Oregon. University is. Okay. Uh, he is a professor and a chairman uh, okay. over there. So uh, he will be joining us from his home, I believe, in Oregon, okay. uh, state of Oregon. All right. Well, we look forward to having him on, and we look forward to having Xi'an on as well. Let's get on to our first topics, and uh, if you excuse me, because I may be uh, – I'm still recovering from the flu that I had last week, so um, I may not be at full strength, but uh, I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to power through today. Um, you may be seeing me pull drinks just like Stephen did just a second ago. Um, but in the meantime, Stephen, let's talk – let's continue to talk about well, what we what we just mentioned, which was the Olympics, and of course, uh, what's been going on with them, uh, still um, the situation with Peng Shui. Uh, still, we we still don't know uh, whether she is okay or not. Mm-hmm. Um, her last appearance last week, according to the International Olympic Committee, was supposed was controlled. So we don't know if she was independently verified that that she had it. Uh, she was seen. Um, She's been seen on Chinese social media. Uh, mm-hmm. The National Olympic Committee continues to say, well, we see her, so she's okay. But no independent media organization in China has uh, verified that she is indeed okay. Um, and it's now, this whole thing is now going over to the National Hockey League because they are now concerned about playing there as well. And I know I've talked and I've heard from uh, people in the in my uh, NHL circles that uh, some of them are very concerned about the fact that if, uh, first of all, there's no handbook by China saying on how they are handling um, any particular COVID outbreaks, and chi- and the NHL players are concerned that they may have to, and if there are test positive in China, they have may have to stay in quarantine in China for three weeks, even after the Olympic tournament preventing them from returning home to the United States or Canada, and they won't be able to play. So once again, this is something that uh, is very fluent and players are, the NHL doesn't know if it's, it's going to be playing, even though they're promised to play and the Peng Shui situation. So the Olympics, Stephen is just right now. um, I don't want to say up in the air, but right now it's just very questionable. If we'll see NHL players playing come February. Yeah, I read that news today, and uh, they haven't really been very, very definitive about the whole situation because of the uh, the COVID uh, protocol and everything. So I'm curious to see where where NHL stands on this issue. Um, you know, NHL uh, is being broadcasted uh, on NBC, which also, you know, as we all know, carries the Olympic Channel summer and winter. So let's see what kind of influence will the NBC Sports and the NBC president uh, will have on it, have on this decision. Because you know you definitely want the NHL stars uh, on the Olympics as a way to generate ratings right. uh, for this one. And I will also add that there have been a lot of boycotts uh, being announced uh, last week. The U.S. is not sending any diplomatic relegation to the Olympics. Uh, Australia has said no to that as well. And uh, I expect more Western countries to, uh, you know, follow the lead uh, as well. Uh, I think South Korea has said that they're not thinking about doing that. So 
it will be interesting to see what this uh, decision will have an impact on the uh, the rest of the countries, uh, mm-hmm. as well as the uh, the Chinese government and their uh, quest for world domination and uh, and their usage of sports as some sort of a propaganda uh, going forward. Yeah, one thing uh, we should say that uh, NBC no longer carries the NHL. Uh, they stopped carrying oh, that's it. That's right. My, my apologies. My apologies. That's okay. ESPN and TNT now carrying it, but uh, NBC will be carrying the hockey portion of the Olympics. And I know that they were looking forward to having the NHL players there, but uh, we'll see uh, what happens because I know already uh, there have been a couple of NHL players who already said they were not going. Uh, Ray Ferraro, who is uh, a commentator for both TSN in, in Canada and ESPN in uh, the United States, who commented, who was a uh, analyst uh, for both networks, uh, says that he is not going to be going to the Olympics, and he has covered the Olympics going back for quite some time. So uh, mm-hmm. we'll have to wait and see uh, if more NHL players and and commentators announced that they are not going to be going uh, to China. Um, it's going to be very interesting. We'll discuss this more with uh, with uh, with the professor when he comes on with us uh, coming up shortly. Apologies for my dog Samson, who's decided that he has he wants to know <laughs> about uh, the the Olympic situation as well. But um, it, it's been dominating the for our first segments for the past three shows, Stephen. How and and just goes to show how the fact that. You know, the Olympics, which has been in Asia uh, since going back to 2018, when it was in Pyeongchang uh, in South Korea for the 2018 Olympics. This will be their third consecutive Olympics there in China after being in Japan, of course, this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just goes to show that um, I don't want to that that China is trying to make this uh, all about itself. Uh, on trying to make it uh, a statement, as you mentioned, to trying to make to do propaganda and trying to make it look good. However, um, the fact is, is that, uh, you know, outside situation, there's, as much as China tries to control things, there's always going to be some outside situation like COVID that's always going to be hanging over the head of the Olympics. We had Zika in 2016. Yeah. Uh, we have COVID in 2020. And 2021, and we're going to still have COVID in 2022, and plus the Peng Shui situation, plus anything else that could that may pop up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, with the uh, the Olympics have been so heavily slanted toward the uh, you know the Asian countries. Obviously, IOC has has its motives. There's no question about that. Uh, they want the you know the uh, Chinese money, the you know the Asian uh, um, uh, money. Um, pretty soon. Um, you know the Olympics, both the summer and winter time, are only going to be held in the uh, Asian countries, which obviously probably not sit well with the uh, you know the Western countries uh, for human rights issues as well as for the uh, you know economical reasons. You know you're forced to watch the game on delay or watch the game at uh, two, three in the morning, depending on the uh, uh, the you know the, the sport. So, you know, we've already experienced that with the, uh, the Summer Olympics uh, on NBC and also on Peacock. So it will be interesting to see if the, uh, the fans will start losing interest in having to watch the Olympics from such a far, far away countries 
uh, and and for the various reasons that I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Well, well, at least for NBC's sake, uh, they ha- at least have Paris coming up in 2024, and uh, perhaps uh, Los Angeles in 2028. Those are two uh, much more um, time zone friendly Olympics for them. But as far as the um, as far as these last three Olympics are concerned, uh, definitely not uh, conducive for NBC and Comcast, and as you mentioned, Peacock. Um, but again, will be interesting to see how this whole thing, uh, how this whole thing plays out, mm-hmm. especially as we continue as we get closer. Um, no, you talked no. about NBC, Stephen. We've uh, talked about how the uh, outside um, si- stories and outside situations are keep influencing uh, the Olympics, no matter how hard that China tries to control the message and tries to control the narrative. However, mm-hmm. I just think it's going to be one of those situations where um, eventually uh, I have a feeling that th- th- I, it just, it, it, just my opinion, I don't think that this particular Olympics is going to do well ratings wise. I'm going to, I know that I'm a media observer and media observers like always like to say doom and gloom for every particular event and say everything is going to be down. But I'm going to say because of the extraneous situations, I think I have a feeling this is going to be uh, viewership is going to be down. Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't know if uh, any of us are in the mood to, you know, watch the Olympics. Um, but given what's going on with COVID, now we have Omicron uh, variant, which is, you know, which is spreading all across the country and around the world uh, by minute. And, um, you know, I just don't see the uh, Olympics being such a, a ratings booster for NBC. Uh like you said, and uh, it will be interesting to see what the uh, the fallout is going to be. You know, we still have about two months uh, or less than two months now uh, between now and the actual start of the Olympics. So anything can still happen, you know, and uh, we will see uh, if, if the Chinese government will uh, will take any actions to uh, bring Peng Shui into the uh, open public to uh, uh, for, you know, to show the world uh, that they are doing something about it, but uh, we all know that everything uh, that they do in the, in the, in these cases, it does have some sort of a, a hint of a propaganda uh, for whatever that they say and do. Uh, also, too, the uh, college football. We talked a lot about that in our last show, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Uh, college football is the the uh, at least uh, the major part of it is over. Um, we now know who's in the college football playoff. Uh, mm-hmm. We all know that who is the Heisman Trophy winner. We talked about this last week with Mike Chen. Um, now we have the bowl season upcoming, so and we're going to be sure. discussing that with Sheehan coming up shortly when he joins us. Um, some of your reactions to uh, the college football playoff and and how, how they were ranked. Um, you know, Alabama completely dominated the game. Uh, in the SEC championship. So, boy, that was really, really surprising. I think Georgia, and I'm going to talk this to Sheehan. I've lived in Georgia. We all know that uh, that state, uh, you know, Georgia dominates and that uh, they're they're very, very talented. They build the program slowly. And, uh, you know, uh, they've done very, very well under Kirby Smart, who is a uh, Nick Saban disciple. And uh, the quarterback play obviously really, really hurt the Georgia, in my opinion. 
So they tumble from one to three, which I was uh, somewhat surprising. I thought maybe two, but obviously the way uh, Alabama dominated had a significant impact on the, uh, the voters and the committee. And uh, Michigan jumped up to two, which they uh, obliterated uh, Iowa as expected. In the Big Ten, yeah. In the Big Ten uh, championship. So, uh, you know, Jim Harbaugh obviously got the last laugh. Um, you know, he came in with a lot of uh, pressure and a lot of critics, you know, Paul Feinbaum, among others. And uh, he really, he and his team really, really responded. Um, and then Cincinnati, I thought, you know, the first non-Power 5 team to be voted into the playoffs, I thought it was well-deserving. Unfortunately, they have to face Alabama in the Cotton Bowl. Uh, so it will be interesting to see if, um, you know, how – Cincinnati will do against the, uh, you know, the ultimate machine that is Alabama and Nick Saban. Yep. Um, you know, I just hope that the game will be uh, competitive uh, throughout the game. You know, we saw last year when Alabama just completely obliterated uh, Notre Dame and Brian Kelly had to face a lot of criticism after the game about his team's uh, overall talent and uh, performance. And, and, you know, obviously he ended up leaving L for LSU a couple of weeks ago for for that reasons, I believe. But uh, I'm definitely uh, excited for the playoffs. And as for the Heisman, you know, I, I tweeted out, I know ESPN was very much trying to hype this up, but, you know, you and I can probably tell, you know, Bryce Young won that uh, title, uh, or at least cemented it when he made a, a tremendous comeback against the uh, Auburn in the Iron Bowl. You know, yeah, Auburn assisted them obviously when the, one of the running backs ended up going out of bounds to stop the clock. But uh, his performance the last two weeks really, really cemented it in the eyes of many people. And I thought that the way they were hyping this up was uh, somewhat, uh, you know, meh. In my opinion, I know there were a couple of other great players, Aiden Hutchinson, you know, Kenny Pickett and uh, CJ Shrub. But listen, this was Bryce Young's uh, award. And um, it was his to lose, basically. It was his to lose. And and I'm, I'm curious to ask uh, Sheehan what he thought about the, um, you know, the Heisman Award and, it, you know, whether he feels the same sentiment as I do. And, you know, if so, what what can it be done to, you know, maybe make it more exciting? going forward and uh steven i have a feeling that you want to introduce sheehan right now all right so this was a uh, first guest that we were hoping to have on our very first show uh because of the uh technical and the scheduling glitch it didn't happen and obviously you know during the regular season he was very very busy covering the uh college football for uh cbs sports um he used to write for Dave Campbell's uh, Texas Football, which is a, a phenomenal magazine. Uh, you know, I lived in Texas uh, for briefly, and I drove past that building uh, where the uh, Dave Campbell's uh, Texas Football office was many, many times. So I'm very, very familiar with the area and the uh, the magazine itself. Uh, we're very, very excited to have Sehan Jayaraja uh, on our show tonight. Sehan, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's pronounced Shahan, by the way. But thank you so much for having me. How do you how do you pronounce your last name? I, I, I I'm so sorry for mispronouncing it. My my apologies. No no worries at all. No worries at all. It's Shahan and then Jayaraja is how you say the last name. Shahan Jayaraja. Okay, you got it. Glad nice. to have you on, Shahan. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. So Ken and I were briefly talking about the Heisman uh, Award last week. It was basically, like Ken said, you know, Bryce Young's to lose. He kind of cemented that award for the last two weeks. And I think a lot of people were kind of like, meh. Uh, and I think we all expected <laughs> Young to win. What was your um, overall impression of the award itself? And did you kind of had that similar feeling? Well, I think what's interesting is that it wasn't really that those last couple weeks. It was that last week. It was when Bryce Young did what he did mm -hmm. against uh, against Georgia's defense, right? And from that perspective, I think that's a great thing, right? Bryce Young went out and won the award. He kind of had his moment and took it and won it. And so I think that that's what you're looking for to do. Now, I think the bigger thing, and this is, I think, an existential question we're facing in college football right now, is that Alabama is so dominant that mm -hmm. I, I think that you question whether it's bad for this sport, right? I mean, certainly this is a conversation <laughs> we've had with UConn basketball, women's basketball back in the day. We, I'm sure we had it back in the 70s with UCLA basketball and with uh, you know, the Boston Celtics and whatever else. But right now we're in the midst of the most dominant run in college football history. You can point to other times. You can point to Tennessee in the 50s, whatever. But with what Alabama faces, with how the sport has changed, the nationalization of the sport – this is, to me, the hardest uh, time to win in college football history, and Alabama's made it look easy. So I think that that's what it comes down to more than anything else, is less about Bryce Young, less about Alabama, less about the Heisman. It's just about Nick Saban and what he's been able to do over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Jahan, is this basically the uh, college football playoff, once again, the Al Alabama Invitational? <laughs> Something <laughs> like that, right? I mean, the funny thing is... I. I saw something out today, right? And they pointed to, well, you know, if you look at teams that are ranked outside of the top 15 in recruiting uh, on average over the last four years, they've lost like 62 to seven in their first round games. And the answer is that they both played Alabama as four seeds, right? I mean, that's that's kind of it, right? I, I mean, I think that sometimes we talk about all these things. We talk about SEC, we talk about blowouts, we talk about talent discrepancies. And so much of it just comes back to the fact that Alabama is Alabama, right? I mean, nobody else is really doing that with much consistency. And so, uh, I, you know, I do think that, that it is going to be interesting heading into the playoff. For me, I was excited heading into championship weekend where it looked like Georgia maybe was going to beat Alabama. Uh, you know, there have been four teams that have taken up 20 of the 28 spots in the college football playoff. That, of course, being Alabama, uh, Oklahoma, Ohio State, and Clemson. And we were potentially on the cusp of having a playoff without any of them in the lineup at all. So that was going to be really exciting to me. Of course, Alabama finds a way to get in by beating Georgia. Um, you know, so I, I think that Alabama certainly has to be the favorite. They're the number one overall seed. Uh, they rounded into form last week. So it will be interesting to kind of see whether Michigan or Cincinnati or even Georgia second time is up to the challenge. Regarding Georgia, uh, how bad does this loss uh, impact their uh, preparation for the Michigan game. And uh, is, um, you know, I talked about this, uh, you know, Stetson Bennett, you know, he can basically like a game manager, um, you know, he's got some nice uh, moments with it. He can make plays with his feet and all, but is uh, Stetson Bennett a, a championship quarterback in your opinion, or is it basically you just have to hope that the, they bounce back and the defense rises to the occasion uh, once again. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So uh, on the College Football uh, Survivor Show, which is a podcast that I do over at Advance Ohio, you know, one thing that we talk about is that there's two types of championship quarterbacks, right? There's the championship quarterbacks that carry their team to championships and there's championship mm -hmm. quarterbacks 
that are kind of along for the ride, right? Like do everything yeah. that they need to right to sort of manage things along the way. Uh, and certainly if Stetson Bennett were to win a championship, which is not a, the, the question by any means, he's very much the second type. And the funny mm -hmm. thing about it is that you look at Georgia's roster, they have three guys on the roster who you feel like maybe could be the other type. You know, JT Daniels, we got to see a little bit at the end of last season, kind of got hurt. We didn't get to see the best of him this season. Uh, and then they've got two other guys who are former, uh, a four-star and a five-star recruit, right? Brock Vandegrift was one of the top quarterbacks in the class of 2021. Carson Beck, the year before that, a four-star kid. So, like, you're kind of left in this position where you're like, how is this what you guys are doing, right? It's like at a certain point. And, you know, I, I think that an interesting theory about it is that they didn't really need to do anything different in the regular season. But now Georgia does have another card to play, right? They do have the card of putting out another quarterback. And I'm curious if that's a card that they end up playing uh, because, you know, they've been really hesitant to do so. But when you get beat like yeah. that, 41 to 24 against the number one team in the nation now, it makes you realize that you might need sort of a big structural change. So that doesn't mean that they're going to do it, but I certainly think that uh, that that has to enter their minds, putting in one of their backup quarterbacks uh, and against Michigan. I mean, look, the funny thing about this, right. Is that for how dominant Georgia was this year, heading into the Alabama game, they had not played a team ranked higher than number 20 in the nation in that final bowl, right? right. Clemson was the best team that they played. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it starts looking like maybe they just weren't a very battle-tested team. Maybe they just played a bunch of teams that were just average, right? So it will be interesting. I, I, I'm curious to see how they deal with Michigan's physicality because that's not a team that's going to back down from anyone. Right. Yeah, I, I speak about Michigan. Finally, they got over the hump and finally beat Ohio State. Um, and now they finally get into the college football playoff. And, and I know that they've been finally saying, this is finally, we get in. This is what we've been waiting for, for Jim Harbaugh. Um, what do you think about their, their chances about advancing into the final? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, the funny thing is – I we hear so much about these sort of power run based offenses, right? And right. we always kind of assume that they look like the same thing. And George is kind of an example of that, right? They're just trying to mash you. They're trying to man you up and get into you. Uh, I think that Michigan this year, one of the biggest compliments I can give them is that they've really rethought that in a lot of ways. They run a lot of misdirection. They run a lot of uh, sort of, you know, trying to attack you from different angles. They're going more to the outside. They're not just running sort of this, this power eye sort of game like they used to a couple years ago. And they've gotten enough from their quarterback position to really space out the game and make things interesting, right? And so I think mm -hmm. that that's, been a big difference for them you know Josh Gaddis was uh you know rumored for head coaching jobs earlier this year their offensive coordinator he was uh one of the finalists for the Broyles award as the best uh, assistant coaches in college football and I think it's made a big difference uh, kind of letting him get out and do his thing so you know a lot changed I think I think that some of it is mental right I mean we I think we sometimes overlook that part of the game but like Michigan has had really good teams and it's just been mentally unable to get over that hump against Ohio state. Right. And, and this right. year was the year that they were finally able to do it. So uh, I think they're a really good team. I think they're a really talented team. This is in a lot of ways, I think the team that Jim Harbaugh hoped he was going to be building at Michigan long-term. Um, and, and I think it's good for football too, because uh, you know, last year, Michigan easily could have fired Jim Harbaugh. Right. I mean, yeah. they go two and four, they have a really tough season. Uh, I think, the fact that their patience has paid off, hopefully that's something that other teams learn from because I don't think it's good for anybody, players, coaches, fans, anybody, when coaches are being fired after two and three years. Sure. About Cincinnati, um, Luke Fickle has done a real good job building that program. 
obviously, you know, he took over when Jim Trestle got fired uh, after all the uh, NCAA uh, investigation, and he only got one year out of it, and, and you know, he got fired as well. Um, is he building something in the long run, or is he basically another coach that will probably be poached perhaps by OSU or anywhere else in a year or two? Well, what's interesting is that you've always heard that there are two jobs that Luke Fickle would look at leaving Cincinnati for. And one of those jobs is Notre Dame, which just opened and hired somebody else. Actually, his former defensive coordinator, Marcus Freeman. Uh, And the other job, of course, is Ohio State. So look, if Ohio State opens, all bets are off, right? I mean, Notre Dame just lost their coach because LSU opened. You know, it's just that kind of a that kind of job. Right. So, but I think that if it's not one of those two jobs, maybe there are other premier jobs that could come open and entice him. I think he's committed to Cincinnati. I I mean, this is a guy who uh, had opportunities to leave. I think if Penn state had opened, he would have gotten a look for that job. I think that there's a number of jobs around the country that would have liked to have him, but he's been really happy so far at Cincinnati. And I think that you really look at what he's building long-term. This is a culmination team in a lot of ways because you have a lot of upperclassmen. You've got a fourth-year starting quarterback. You've got uh, several players that are going to be picked in the NFL draft. And I I do want to mention that uh, you know, people look at the Cincinnati team and they kind of just see them for their recruiting rankings. Uh, This is a team that's played together for a long time. They've won 22 straight regular season games. And they have talent that's going to play in the NFL at every level of the field. They Mm -hmm. have the single best cornerback pairing in college football. Not for their level but the two best in college football in Kobe Bryant and Ahmad Gardner, right? So Alabama hasn't seen a secondary like this, which is crazy, right? This It's Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't assume that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I think it's going to be a real challenge. I'm really curious how uh, Ahmad Gardner really matches up with Jamison Williams, Alabama's top receiver. Uh, and so it's going to be different, right? I mean, they're not going to have as many guys as Georgia to kind of bash into Alabama's offensive line, but they do have guys who are going to be playing on Sundays. My Sanders is a guy uh, on the yeah. defensive line who's going to be playing on Sundays. Jerome Ford at running back. He's going to be playing on Sundays. Desmond Ritter is going to be drafted. They've got receivers who are going to be drafted. So like, this is not a team that's going to back down when faced with talent. So I, I think that Luke Fickle's done a tremendous job. I think uh, you look around college football right now, it, it seems like that's kind of the way that these sort of mid-tier teams are going is they're trying to find some stars at each level and, uh, and just – fill the rest of the gaps with really solid players. You, you can't match up with Georgia having, you know, 25 stars, right? Nobody nobody else can do that. But sure. uh, I, I think that if you have pros at every level and then kind of mix it up with some really good players, it's a recipe for a lot of success. Mm-hmm. Speaking with Shahan Joraja from CBS, uh, fantastic college football writer and so happy we have him on. Like uh, Stephen mentioned, we were trying to get him on our first show, but – we finally have success and got you on. Uh, <laughs> Shahan, how key was it for Cincinnati to get in? I know the the, the non-Power 5 conferences were always uh, complaining about the fact they never got a seat at the table. Now they have a seat at the table. And, of course, there's always talk about expanding the college football playoff to 12 teams. So how key was it to, for them to get in before that eventual expansion to 12? Yeah, I think it's huge. I, I mean, no team in the group of five had ever finished higher than number seven in the nation. And I think one thing about it is that uh, a lot of people look at Cincinnati and just see them as Cincinnati. But I think that 
UCF fans are going to be really excited about this, right? This this kind of started with them in a lot of ways back in 2017. I think that Houston fans, thinking back to some of those Tom Herman teams, right? They had a chance to maybe get into the playoff. And even more than just the group of five, I think even other fans in the Power Five who maybe are fans of programs that aren't going to be consistently in that conversation, right? Something where Cincinnati's not a school known for football historically. They've been fine, but they're even when they were in the Big East, a power conference, they weren't a power by any means. And so I, I think that this is sort of, uh, for a lot of fans, a special moment because it's an opportunity to kind of think, maybe we could get there, right? Maybe this could be us someday. Maybe this could be us. And look, there's a world for sure that Cincinnati can't hang with Alabama. And there's a mm-hmm. world where nobody in the country can hang with Alabama. It shouldn't right. matter. Right. It doesn't matter. I mean, for goodness sake, I've seen people say like, you know, and ask me because I'm excited about this. I think it's good for the sport. You know, if Cincinnati gets blown out, does that put a damper on things? And I'm like, I mean, does Georgia getting blown out prove that prove that they shouldn't have been in the playoff? Nobody makes that argument. Right. That like because Georgia got blown out, we need to not put the SEC in the playoff. That's a silly argument. Right. And so I'm really excited. Uh, I think that they can hang. I'll be curious to see if they can hang enough to beat them, of course. Uh, sure, you know, sure. That's a whole other story. But uh, I think it's going to be a really good game. I think there's going to be a lot of people rooting them on. And, I mean, when you talk Davids versus Goliaths, what gets mm-hmm. bigger than Alabama versus Cincinnati? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, of course, we remember people are hoping that this is the same watershed moment that when it was when the Fiesta Bowl, when Boise State beat Oklahoma. So we're mm-hmm. kind of thinking about maybe that <laughs> same way, you know, hoping or for that same moment. Definitely. No question about it. And I think that it will be in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I, I was down at some of the uh, the expansion meetings, the playoff expansion meetings, which were out in Dallas a little bit. Um, and, you know, they're unanimous. They want to expand right now. The, the question is the timeline. The question is the number. The question is especially auto bids for uh, for the ACC, especially, uh, you know, but there's a lot of excitement and uh, around expanding. I think that that's something that's going to happen. Um, you know, we'll, I think we all hope that it's that it comes by 2024. It might be 2025. It might be 2026. Mm-hmm. We don't know at this point, but it is something that's coming down the road. And I think especially, you know, in a year like this, where you do have three teams that have not won titles this millennium to, to have a chance to win a national title, I think it's going to create a lot of excitement because for, you know, for Michigan being this giant brand, they haven't won since 97. Georgia hasn't won sure. since 1980. Cincinnati's never won. You know, so I, I think there's going to be a lot of excitement just to see different brands kind of get in on that stage. And as long as the games are good, I think people will be excited. Absolutely. Uh, Shahan, I wanted to ask you about the uh, all the coaching changes in the uh, college football. Um, which school made the right hire and which school made the, um, if there is such a thing at this point, like a, a curious or head scratching hire in your opinion so far? <laughs> Yeah, well, how much time do you have? But I think that <laughs> we got a lot of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that uh, the obvious no-brainer one, right, is Lincoln Riley going to USC. I yeah. mean, that is that does not happen, right? That that just no. that sort of thing never happens. I mean, the, the last time an Oklahoma coach left for any other job was the 1970s. Now it's for the NFL. The last time that an Oklahoma coach left for another college job was 1946. That's how long we're talking, right? Yeah. And uh, and at Oklahoma, right, I mean, this is not a coach who was on the cusp of being fired. This is somebody that they'd hope would be their coach for the next 30 years, right? Young and coach so, that's going to be there for a while. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 
not even 40 yet. And so, yeah. you know, he's now he's now going out to the West Coast. He's going to USC. And the thing is, right, with USC, we hear so much. Uh, and I mean, well, you know, with with uh, Miami, too, I'll kind of put in a similar boat, not as, as much of so. But, you know, you hear so much, right, that uh, that when things are rolling, when when people are excited, it's just different. Right. I mean, that, it's just one of those places. We saw it in the 2000s. And so just Lincoln Riley showing up and saying, USC, I believe that you're a major program. I think that's just going to be huge for the the future of the program. Because when you are a coach who, I mean, you can almost think like a recruit, right? I mean, he had the choice between going to LSU, between staying at Oklahoma, and between going to USC, along with really any other job that could have potentially come open, right? He could have had any of them. And yeah. he chose USC. So when you go into a kid's living room and say, I had every option in the world and I chose USC, I think that means something. And the other thing, too, is that USC is a school that's really, really known for quarterbacks, right? More than sure. anything else, Lincoln Riley's the quarterback guy. And so yeah. you already see the number two overall player in the class of 2023, Malachi Nelson, a kid from uh, Los Angeles, is staying home. Right, he's going to go to USC. He was previously committed to Oklahoma. That's going to keep happening. Uh, you know, we we talk about uh, heading into this year. The three biggest names at quarterback in the country are DJ Uyunglele, the quarterback at Clemson, Bryce Young, the quarterback at Alabama, and CJ Stroud, the quarterback at Ohio State. All three of those guys are from Southern California, and right. none of them went to USC. That's mm -hmm. not going to happen anymore with Lincoln Riley coming to town. Okay, uh, so in thinking of thinking of ones that are maybe more interesting, so I think that there's a bunch. It's it's hard to it's hard to, to single one out. <laughs> How about top I two? I think that yeah yeah yeah. I, I think that I mean obviously I understand the logic of the hire, but Ryan Kelly at LSU is going to be a very strange cultural fit at first. I know. Right? I mean this yep. Yep. this is uh this is something that um. He's one of the great coaches in college football, right? I mean, he's a top five coach in college football. I don't want to lose track of that. Mm -hmm. But you're kind of starting something brand new. This is an area that he's never recruited before. Right. And, you know, one thing that uh, that I talked about a lot, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a Baylor grad. I had a lot of people ask me questions about Dave Aranda and LSU, right? And one of the reasons that I thought that Dave Aranda wouldn't be particularly interested in LSU is because in the SEC, it's such a hardcore recruiting culture. You know what I mean? It, like it's that's the forefront of it all. And coaching football is almost second in a lot of ways. Well, yeah. all of a sudden, Brian Kelly now, you know, he's going to do a great job, I think, coaching on the field. But it's going to be interesting to see how does he acclimate? Can he go in and close these deals like Ed Orgeron did, like Les Miles did, like Nick Saban did? It's going to be tough. I mean, it's just a completely different challenge in a lot of ways than what they're used to. And so uh, I, I think that it's going to be one that maybe needs a little more time than uh, mm -hmm. than some of these others. I, I think that Brian Kelly's a really good coach, but it felt so much also that they just needed a splash, right? Like they just wanted to go and get a splash and they were willing to do whatever it took to go and get a splash. And, uh, and it didn't matter the fit. It didn't matter whatever else. They just needed somebody with a name and they overlooked some really good candidates like Billy Napier, maybe like Dave Aranda as a result. I, I think that they're going to be fine. I think it's going to work out for them, but it, it's definitely a very weird fit to start out with. It's going to be definitely culture shock for Brian Kelly, even though he tried to put a fake Southern accent on it. But it's definitely going to be, <laughs> uh, uh, it's definitely going to be uh, some culture shock for him, a Midwestern guy, uh, a guy who has been in the Midwest from Boston, going down yeah. to the south. It's going to be a definite <laughs> culture change. Absolutely. Um, 
One more college uh, coach question. Um, we had uh, Michael Chen, who covers the uh, the Fighting Irish Wire on the USA Today Network. Um, he was raving about Marcus Freeman's hire, and uh, he actually predicted that if Brian Kelly was to leave, that was his job. So there's a question at the bottom by Laz. Can he elevate the uh, the Notre Dame to another level, like uh, Alabama's or Georgia's? Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing that we've already seen, and by the way, I'd be remiss not to mention that uh, Marcus Freeman is half Asian, so, you know, just have to make sure <laughs> and throw that in there. We talked about last yeah. week, too. Yes, yes, yes. yes, and, yes. and on top of that, Kyle Hamilton, their star safety, also half Asian, and they also have a quarterback who's actually a freshman what? over there now who's also half Asian. Tyler, so, what was his name? Tyler, Tyler Buchner. Yeah, yes. Buchner, I think. Yes, yes, yes. And so, uh, you know, a lot of ties there. I think it's going to definitely for it's it's strange, right? I mean, this this old school uh, Catholic program, I think, is going to be a big favorite among Asian Americans now. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, it's funny from the moment that he was at Cincinnati. Right. It, it always felt like if Luke Fickle left, this is his job. Like, yeah, no questions asked. No, inter- like this is his job. And when he went to Notre Dame, he had the opportunity to be the defensive coordinator anywhere like LSU actually tried to offer him this past year and he picked Notre Dame he is a Midwestern guy but I think that also I think that he maybe did see some untapped potential at Notre Dame Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways because um you know at Notre Dame you're dealing with some some limitations in terms of the ways that you can recruit one because you have to recruit nationally it's a different sort of game than LSU where you're recruiting within 200 miles each direction, right? I mean, you have to go get on a plane and fly to California and get CJ Sanders, another half Asian kid. Uh, you have to go to the other coast and, you know, it, that's just part of the game, right? And yeah. and so it's difficult to recruit. And the other thing too, is that Notre Dame has some uh, academic restrictions versus some other schools. They yeah. take it very seriously. It's like recruiting at Stanford or something like that. So sure, I think in a lot of ways, uh, Marcus Freeman saw that as an opportunity. And Right now in the class of 2022, this upcoming class that starts signing tomorrow, I mean, they're a top 10 class and you look at their next class, it's even better. Like it's like potentially a top five higher class, right? I mean, it's a really, really good recruiting class. Um, But, you know, and I think that sometimes black coaches get pigeonholed as recruiters. You look at what they did defensively. He runs a very interesting kind of 3-3-5 system. He's really ahead of the the curve in a lot of ways when it comes to schematics as well. So I I think that he's a great fit. Um, You know, you've seen from all the videos and stuff that they put out, uh, you know, the players love him. But he's very serious, right? There's sort of this perception that maybe he's just this, like, fun-loving players coach. Like, he's the son of of a veteran, right? I mean, he... He is a very structured person, and I think that he really does a great job of tying together, showing that care to players and being on players' side with also that sort of discipline uh, that you really need to be a great college football program, especially at a place like Notre Dame. So it says a lot to me that he won people over in a year at Notre Dame (laughs) to the point where they were like, we're going to keep you around and be the head coach. Uh, But I think that everything that we've seen from him, not just at Notre Dame, but also at Cincinnati says this is a rising star in the business. Shahan, let's talk a little bit about your background. Of course, this is the double A team. It's about Asians uh, and Asian in sports. Uh, Let's talk about your background. What what interested you in college football and what interested to get you into uh, sports journalism? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So growing up, I was not a college football guy. I watched the uh, the national championship team uh, at Texas. That was like the big college football moment in this state, of course, when Vince Young runs into the end zone. Absolutely. But college football was always sort of a secondary sport to me. Growing up, I, I loved the NBA. That was my big sport. But when I went to college, I went to Baylor University and I came at a great time. You know, Robert Griffin III had just won the Heisman. Yep. They went on, uh, did really well, obviously won a couple of Big 12 championships. Uh, and, you know, so I just fell in love with it, right? You just, and for me, with college football, I love the game, but I love like the culture of it too, because I, I think that it's the most hyper local sport that there is in a lot of ways. Because I mean, you meet people. I mean, one of the, I, I try to explain this to people, right? I could go on for hours about this, right? I mean, when you meet somebody who's a fan of the University of Arkansas, right? I mean, you you learn about that place. You don't just learn about the school. You don't just learn about the graduates. You learn about Fayetteville. You learn about, uh, you know, Northwest Arkansas. Same all the way around, right? I mean, I think that you just learn so much about people through college football. And that's what I've always really gravitated towards. Um, and, you know, and then I think the other thing too is that it's just so much fun, right? I mean, that's just at the end of the day, I mean, it's it's 18 to 22 year olds. You never know what's going to happen. I mean, it's, I, I think that it's one of the most fun sports out there to, to watch and to cover. And I think, you know, so I fell in love with it. And so for me, I, I joined the school newspaper in college, really started to do well there, started to figure out maybe I had a future in this, uh, kind of worked my way up. I worked for Cox Media Group covering the SEC and Big 12 out of college, moved over to Dave Campbell's Texas Football, which you see uh, on my mantle back yep. there. I've got some yep. uh, some of my cover stories over at Dave Campbell's Texas Football. And, and for people who don't know, Dave Campbell uh, just passed actually yesterday, but the 96-year-old oh. founder of the magazine. Amazing that he was able to to live 96 years. So, and a great um, brand, too. He, yes. he established his own brand. Absolutely. I mean, he's... I, I God can only bless us with the opportunity to have a name that lives on like that after after we're gone. And so um worked there for three years and then I joined CBS Sports this year as a national college football writer. It's been it's been a wild ride. Uh, obviously going from covering uh, some of the hyper local of Texas to now the hyper local of the whole country, right? And so it's been a lot of fun. I I've loved every minute of it. And and the the fact that you went to CBS and going from Dave Dave Brown's uh, the great guy that he is and the great uh, the great uh, stories that you write over there to go into national. What has that meant to you? Yeah, it's it's been really cool. I mean, the funny thing is, right, I mean, there's not a ton of us in this industry, right? There's not yeah. a ton of Asian Americans, especially right. in college football. I, but it's been great because the number of us that there are have really connected in a lot of ways. And I remember mm -hmm. when I joined Dave Campbell's, I got so many messages from especially South Asian Americans, right. Being like, there's going to be this guy, you know, named Shahan <laughs> J. Raja who has his name in the magazine, right. On all these bylines across the magazine. I wrote, I wrote like 35,000 words every year for the magazine. And so, you know, and now I get so many messages like that from people all over the country, right. To, I mean, admittedly, right, the, all the other writers when I started working there are, are white men. And I'm this, mm -hmm. you know, South Asian guy with this this funny sounding name. And it, it, it's just so cool for me to have that opportunity to to be able to kind of be there and kind of, uh, you know, represent in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, and, and I think for me, it's always been so important for people to know that college football is for them, too. Right. It's mm -hmm. not just for who you think college football is for, right? I think that right. there's this this perception that it's a very 
rural sport even, or it's a very white sport, mm. or it's very whatever, southern sport even. And, yeah. and I think that to let people know that college football is for them, there's no need to gatekeep, there's no need to keep anybody out. We just want to bring people in. Um, I think that I try to do that with my work as well in a lot of ways, trying to connect people and and try to keep people's stories at the forefront. Uh, but even, I mean, the, the funny thing, of course, about being a minority is that just existing in a lot of ways is activism, right? Just being, sure. having sure. my face, having my name and, and doing my job is uh, is almost activism in a way. So I embrace every part of that. And uh, it's been really cool to watch it come together. Mm -hmm. You wrote a, a very powerful uh, kind of like an op-ed uh, just before the uh, college football season, 20-year uh, anniversary of 9-11. Uh, That's one reason why I wanted to reach out to you uh, as a first guest because of what Ken and I uh, want to do, promote ourselves, uh, improve our, our standings within the, uh, you know, sports and entertainment world. Can you kind of delve into what made you write that and what was the, uh, the response from uh, other people? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny over the past you know, I guess ever since I've gotten a platform, I've I've always wanted to be authentic to myself, right? Because mm -hmm. I know that for a lot of people, I mean, just going back to my time at Baylor, I mean, it's a major school. It's a really good school. A lot of people from Dallas and Houston and wherever else come there. But yeah. even from those places, you'd, you'd be shocked uh, or maybe you wouldn't uh, how many people say that they've never met a South Asian person before. Right. And so mm -hmm. I know that people reading my work, a lot of them might not know somebody like me. So I, I decided very early on that I never wanted to lose track of that, of, of, you know, I don't want people to read my work and not kind of have to know who I am. Right. I mean, I think that that's important to me. And so, it, you know, when, when, uh, when the 20 year anniversary of 9-11 happens, I mean, I think that as a South Asian American and as an Asian American in general, I mean, that's what played such a big role in shaping my childhood, right? I'm 27 years old. I was uh, seven years old when 9-11 when happened, right? And so mm -hmm. for me, I mean, I go from a place of nobody knowing what I am to all of a sudden people assuming that I'm something that I'm not, right? In a lot of ways. And so um, you know, it just played such a big role in in the way that I see myself, you know, feeling in so many ways growing up as an outsider. It It's, uh, you know, shaped how people interacted with me, especially earlier on in my life. It I think that it made me at times skeptical or wary of, of people because I just you don't know how people see you. Right. And and that's certainly something that I think a lot of minorities deal with in general, but I think it was really heightened in so many ways by 9-11. And it, I think that a lot of people on 9-11, and I think, you know, Veterans Day and Pearl Harbor, you know, all, I think sometimes people, yeah. it's just easy to, to post a flag and and be like, you know, oh, this big American moment and uh, let's move on with my day sort of thing, right? And, right? and I think that it is important for people to know that, uh, that we're part of this history and not in a sure. good way, right? That this this shaped how we see ourselves, this shaped the way that my family was treated, this shaped the way that my friends were treated. Um, and, and I just felt like it was important. Uh, and, and I knew that people wouldn't all be happy to hear it, especially on such a kind of sacred day in America, but because mm -hmm. it's sacred and because, I mean, I'll, I'll say like, I, I'm a proud American. I want to, you know, I've, I've always sure. loved this country, but I think that part of loving this country is 
standing up and saying, I have a problem and it's not okay the way that the country's treating me too. And so Absolutely. I felt like that was an opportunity to do that. And um, the, the response was so positive. I heard from people who said they never even thought about it that way, which was my hope, right? I mean, so many people just don't know, <laughs> you know, they mm -hmm. don't know that they don't know. And so if I can be at least that, that bridge to helping people hear about it, at least, I, I think that if it changes one person's perception, if it helps some person understand, it's worth it. And what's great about that, Shahan, is that, as you mentioned, we, we can all not agree, which is the great thing about this country. Uh, we can be united on one part, but we can also say, hey, look, you and I can disagree and we can disagree uh, respectfully. Um, I know where it's been uh, – the country has fallen apart in quite a few other ways, but uh, we can at least in some in some ways say, hey, look, uh, this is why I love the country. This is why I'm calling it out. And this is why I need to say this. And I'm, and, and that I think that's what what was behind your article. Yeah. And, you know, I, I one thing that's really uh, influenced me is the comedian Hasan Minaj has uh, that, yes. this great show, yeah. Homecoming King. Right. I mean, and he talks a lot about this. Uh, and that was really something that I think that big picture inspired me to think about myself and my place in the world. And uh, he has this great line in it where, you know, he talks about immigrant parents. My, my parents are first generation immigrants and my wife's parents are first generation immigrants. And uh, for first generation immigrants, you know, there, I think that sometimes there is this idea that, uh, that this is part of it, right? That this, that we we're coming here and we know what we're going to face and that we just need to take it and get through it because it'll be better, you know, and, and mm -hmm. it'll pay off especially for our kids. And now me being somebody who grew up here, you know, being second generation, uh, the line that Hasan Minhaj says is that I have the audacity of equality, right? And that's what this is in so many ways to me, right? Is that it is my duty in a lot of ways to stand up and say, that's not okay. Because I have that privilege as a second generation person whose parents sacrificed so much to to make a right. life for us here. So right. uh, I, I think that I'd be wasting the opportunity that was given to me in a lot of ways to to try and gloss over it. Well, uh, Shahan, well, thank you so much for uh, joining us tonight. Um, you know, Ken and I obviously were uh, Eastern Asians, and uh, obviously, pandemic has had a very very negative impact on our community in more ways than one. And uh, this is one reason why, you know, we started this show to showcase, you know, our problems as well as uh, promoting people who work within the industry that, you know, obviously you could probably agree that still lacks diversity in more ways than one. So having somebody like you to showcase your uh, talent work and then also explain your side of the story was, a tremendous uh, honor. And then uh, we would love to uh, have you on our show down the road, you know, when the college football uh, playoffs settle down and, you know, maybe Alabama wins it again. <laughs> Who knows? But uh, we'd love to have you again uh, down the road. And uh, hopefully uh, we look forward to uh, having you again down the road. 
Yeah, well, thank you so much. It's it's a great honor to be a part of something like this. It's It's been really special the last couple of years to see some of these Asian American publications come up. And, uh, you know, I've gotten involved in the Asian American Journalists Association. And it's, it's mm -hmm. you know, it's it's slowly but steadily we're, we're building such a great community. And uh, I, yes. you know, the, the hope is, of course, that uh, that someday when I have kids and when we ha keep having journalists keep coming up, that it's easier for them than it even was for us. Uh, absolutely. Shahanja Haraja uh, from CBS Sports College Football Writer Extraordinaire. Anything else you want to plug on the show while we have you on? No, no. I, I appreciate you guys for having me on. Uh, I think that, all, you know, for me, always uh, what I try to tell to Asian American journalists is you belong here. And, I, and I'm and i so excited to see how we all uh, continue to rise together. Much appreciated, Sean. I couldn't think of any any way to better to end this first segment. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon. And the Double A team will continue right after this. Thank you, Sean. The past year has seen a one thousand nine hundred percent rise in anti-Asian hate crime in New York City alone, with two thousand eight hundred incidents reported across forty-seven states and Washington D.C. This is a national crisis, and we need your help to call it out. Call it a crime. Call it what it is, racism. Let's stand up together against hate. Learn more at StopAAPIHate.org. Really understanding the difference between empowerment and agency versus objectification. And the difference is always who has the power. If I choose that I feel my best and, and I look my best and I'm the most confident in a certain outfit, then I am empowering myself to make that choice and to tell you that I'm, I, I'll show you who I am and let you know who I am. You can't make those decisions based off what I'm wearing. But if it's objectification because the producers or directors or whoever runs a show is saying you have to wear a dress every show and high heels have to be this high and you have to dye your hair blonde, it's a very different thing, right? So right. I do think we have to remember that because a lot of people will look at women who are stepping into their own sexuality and, and accuse them of not being also allowed to talk about harassment and other things. They're very different things. It's about choice and power. We're back with the double A team, Ken Fang, along with Stephen Nagishi. And uh, Stephen, uh, I think it's uh, another great uh, guest on. Um, we had, uh, if you just missed it, if you're just coming back from uh, coming back from break with us, and Stephen needs you to unmute, um, just want to say thank you to uh, Shehan uh, Jeharaja of CBS Sports, uh, great college football writer, great stuff. And uh, Really, to be to, to be honest, to, just to hear his background and hear that uh, coming from a different perspective, it, it just it, it's very refreshing, Stephen. Absolutely, you know, we had uh, Michael Chan uh, on our show three times. He covers the uh, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, and uh, Shehan, you know, obviously he's a South uh, East uh, Asian of Indian descent. So you know, it's uh, it's nice to see you know diversity in a sports that. You know, we've talked about uh, college football, NFL, you know, football in general. You don't see too many, you know, Asians playing or coaching. So, you know, for them at least to be part of it, uh, you know, being a, a reporter, writer, 
I think it's important to have their perspective. And, uh, you know, Shahan's obviously moved on to greater things working for CBS. And, uh, you know, uh, CBS obviously uh, is a huge name in the uh, college football broadcasting, uh, you know, uh, with the SEC package. And hopefully, you know, Shahan will eventually be on television uh, as an insider, you know, going forward. And uh, we get to uh, enjoy his work uh, going forward. Yeah, and, and that's the reason why we have the show, the Double A Team, is to highlight other people. I mean, we always see the Ian Rappaports, uh, we always mm-hmm. see the uh, Adam Schechter, Adam Schechters, yes, and we always see like uh, the the Woj bombs on on TV. This is a chance for you to see other people, and we highlight the talent that we have as Asian uh, American Pacific Islanders in this community. Mm-hmm. who love sports just as much as as anybody else um growing up as a sports fan steven you are growing up as a sports fan we'll talk about the bears a little bit later but we all talk sure. <laughs> <laughs> well uh, we we know uh we feel we know just as much as anybody else in, the, in in other communities so um when people when we talk about sports when we go to sports bars or when we uh hear about it from other people talk to other people they'll say you know sports you know sports too i go well yeah i grew up in this country i i love the red Sox as much as you do or you, <laughs> you say the bear i love the bears as much as you do so you sure know, sure we, absolutely that's why we do this show and we're highlighting other talent and we certainly hope that you give them a follow on twitter or mm-hmm. uh, read their work because this is very this is why we do the show Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, while we wait for the uh, Professor uh, Boykoff to join us, uh, we can probably touch bases on the uh, NFL. Um, absolutely. All right, so the Bears put on a pretty uh, fun show last night against the uh, the Packers for about two quarters. <laughs> um, and, then at third, and then the second half, it just kind of went into a crapper. Uh and Green Bay, and of course Aaron Rodgers, despite that pinky toe, um, mm-hmm. I think he. I think I, I really don't think he has anything wrong with his pinky. I'm I'm just being being facetious. He, he obviously he has something wrong with his pinky toe, but I, I just think he just puts on a little bit of a drama queen show just to show that trying to like show that he's uh you know you know coming into the game with a, with a disadvantage, and all of a sudden the talent takes over, and that and that's and we see what happened last night. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, it's it's four quarters uh, of a game, and uh, you know the Bears forgot that it was a you know game of two halves. And uh, Matt Nagy, you know, he was quoted he's having so much fun. And listen, I'm not going to berate him for saying that. Listen, he's he's had a really really rough time, and we all know his fate. I don't have to. Uh, you know, beat, beat, you know, beat the subject to death about how he should be fired or something like that. Well, I think that's but, uh, that's, that's ine- inevitably right now. That yes, it's inevitable. That's and, and for the Bears to delay the inevitable makes absolutely no sense. And um, you know, and what we saw yesterday was another you know nail to the coffin and, and, and the recent history of Aaron Rodgers owning us. And uh, just, uh, you know, Alan Lazard wearing still own, own us. It's just a, a slap in the face to yeah. our, uh, mm-hmm. our fan base right now. But it is what it is. We have to un- unfortunately accept that. Uh, so 
you know, watching Justin Fields struggle, uh, you know, getting bulldozed, uh, getting hit, you know, as he deals with the crack ribs, it was painful to watch. And, um, you know, that fourth down and uh, short punt really was a uh, uh, just a, a total cowardness of, uh, you know, Matt Nagy's tenure that, um, you know, he pretty much summed it up. And now he today, he said, I wish he he went for, it, you know, it's that's just a little bit too late at this point. You, I was thinking when that happened, you have nothing to lose. You're behind. <laughs> Go for it. Um you're you're deep in your own. You're deep in dip, uh, Green Bay territory. You have a chance to make a uh, uh, chance, but um, I, I'm just very. I, I felt bad for the. I, I felt bad for you. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you, you saw me tweet at you a couple of times, as saying I could hear you screaming from Columbus all the yeah. way. From <laughs> so um, I'm. Uh, I'm very. Uh, I feel. I feel bad for the Chicago fans. Uh, I, I know this is all about the uh, the, the Barroom Network is is, sure, is, sure, is sure. centric, so I'm um, I'm feeling for you guys. I I, I I I see Justin Fields trying to do stuff that um, he has to run for his life. I yeah. see some uh, a lot of promise from some of the stuff he did yesterday. Chris Collinsworth said a lot of nice things about him, but you know when you've got to run for your life in, a, in a, an offensive line that that is pretty faulty and and uh, uh, leaking like a sieve. Um, mm-hmm. you could you could be Tom Brady and and, and ha- pretty much have the same result as the Bears did last night. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just watching it was, uh, yeah, just uh, the second half was just a slow, slow ble- bleeding of you know the hope that just went away in the first half, and uh, yeah, it was it was tough to watch, and. Um, you know, the, earlier in that day, CBS, Jason LaConfora uh, said said that uh, Trace Armstrong, the former Bears defensive end and uh, former NFLPA president and uh, now a uh, agent, was going to take over to become the director of football operations job. Now, he refuted that several hours later because he represents both Matt Nagy, the uh, – the moribund coach of the Bears and Ryan Day, who is uh, Ohio State University head coach, that has been linked to the job uh, for some reasons, and obviously, <laughs> doing an interview uh, under these circumstances would have made it so awkward for both gentlemen. So, it's it's understandable that uh, Armstrong would say, "No, I am not interviewing with the Bears at this time." But you never know. Um, if the Bears are desperate enough. Um, I think that uh, maybe this time, you know, George McCaskey will finally have his uh, come to Jesus moment. And I think the Bears are really, really at that point right now. So let's see where the Bears are uh, toward the end of the year. You know, the two week interview period with the, uh, you know, the coaches are in place this year. And I and I do hope that the Bears will figure out how to, uh, you know, take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, obviously, you know, if you still have Ryan Pace as the GM, that doesn't make sense because obviously Nagy and Pace are tied together. So we might have to just suck it up and watch the next four weeks of this game of this game, and uh, just wait until 
January 10th, the mm-hmm. day after, you know, which is, uh, which is many call the Black Monday, you yep. know, where coaches and GMs gets fired. So we might have to ride it out, unfortunately. Uh, my, my sympathies to all the Bear fans, and uh, um, I, I'm feeling for you. Um, um, in regards to the team that I follow, the uh, Cleveland uh, Cleveland Browns, uh, they performed pretty well yesterday, although they did their very, very best to hand a game to the Baltimore Ravens. Um, Baker Mayfield finally showed some pe- some promise. He threw he distributed the ball quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I got to say, Stephen, that uh, um, I'm still not – while there's still a game uh, behind for the division lead behind the Ravens, they still have a lot of uh, things for me to, to prove to me, not that I hold any stock over the team, but they still have a lot of th- uh, things to prove to me. Um, but although beating the Ravens yesterday was a big was a was very big, it was it was, and uh, you know, um, having watched the game yesterday uh, in my area, um, I was pretty impressed with the um, you know the start that the Browns had, um, and then in the second half it just kind of uh, you know just really slow down uh, significantly. And in this despite without not having to face um, Lamar Jackson. Right. And uh, yeah, they had to really, really sweat it out toward the end. I, I, I was, uh, you know, I was uh, watching it and was wondering what Ken was thinking as he. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was barely holding on Steven. So, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know what? Um, a win is a win. Uh, they're one. They're they're still in the playoff hunt, which is what I want. What you want them to be going into week fifteen. Uh, we have three more weeks to go, or four more weeks to go. So yes, sir. hopefully, uh, I keep thinking three weeks. I, I keep forgetting we have an extra week this. this that week. is right, right. So uh, let let's see what happens. Uh, they've got a big game coming up this this uh, this Saturday. Um, so right with the Raiders, I believe. Yes, the Raiders. It's on NFL Network only. So uh, we'll have to wait and see. I, I'm, 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 I, I'm hoping it. This is a game that they should win. But mm-hmm. um, you know, the every time the Browns do something like I think they should win, they lose. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that they do well against Derek Carr and uh, Hunter Renfro and the uh, and a team that that really has. Uh, we talked about this earlier in the season about the with John Gruden and the situation. They they pretty much seem to, uh, although yesterday they just play, played an absolute stinker against the Kansas City Chiefs. Sure, they are, they're they're still surviving and, and and going through the season and at least not out of playoff contention. Yeah, it will be interesting. You know, it's a Saturday game. You know, yep. a day early. Uh, you know, they're at home again. Yes. Um, you know, they need to win this game to further solidify themselves in the, uh, not just the playoff race, but, um, you know, the divisional race, because, you know, this, this division, I think it's still very much up for grabs in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And of course, if there's one person who we know is good, if you give him any chance to win a game, Tom Brady is going to win a game. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I'm still I, I have a feeling uh, uh, I think the Buffalo Bills are going to still rue the fact that, A, they had a game they could have won against the New England Patriots 
and then they played their old rival, Tom Brady, had a chance on fourth and two to score a touchdown late in the yes. game or at least get a first down. But then uh, Sean McDermott decides to first inexplicably to go for a tying field goal mm-hmm. and then go to o- take his chances in overtime when you know if you don't score, Tom Brady is just going to drive the field and then and, and score on you. Right. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to this in a little bit, but Buffalo is in serious problems right now. They're at Absolutely. seven and six, and uh, you know they're they're really really uh, sweating it right now. But uh, we'll get back to the NFL in uh, just a moment. But uh, joining us now is Professor Jules Boykoff uh, from the uh, Pacific University. Uh, Professor, thank you so much. We apologize for the uh, the glitch and uh, you know the missed information and uh, links and everything. But uh, we thank you for joining us uh, on such short notice. How are you this evening? All good. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Professor Boykoff, um, your expertise is uh, Olympics and IOC. And uh, one thing we have been talking about on this show uh, for the last three weeks, of course, is the issue with uh, China and the upcoming uh, Winter Olympics. Uh, they have the uh, situation with Peng Shui, uh, who has been um, – seen or not seen uh the uh international olympic committee uh has been saying that uh they have seen her and talked with her uh of course she's the tennis star who accused a communist uh party uh leader of uh sexual assault um she has now been uh she originally was uh missing for a while the her the uh women's tennis association said they will not uh play any tournaments until they have some concrete evidence that they have seen her. Um, Professor, where do you see that, uh, how this is going to affect the Olympics in China? Probably will not, but uh, how they uh, do the narrative and how they maybe try to bring Peng Shui into maybe an Olympic ceremony, an opening ceremony to try and show that, yes, she's okay. Yeah, well, hey, that's creative. I haven't heard that one yet. And, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but hey, you know, I wouldn't put it past them. Uh, it's a really complex situation. You know, on one hand, you've got an obvious human rights abusing country that is hosting the Olympic Games. And there's tons of evidence out there, whether you're talking about how Tibetans are treated, whether you're talking about how Uyghur Muslims and other Turkic and ethnic minorities are being treated, whether you're talking about the way that Hong Kong democracy activists have been treated. And so the way they've been treated clashes mightily with principles that are enshrined in the Olympic Charter. So on one hand, your viewers and listeners are probably wondering, like, why would China get to host the Olympics? It seems so out of tune with what the Olympics are supposed to be about. On the other hand, what makes it complex is that, you know, the countries that are wagging their fingers at China aren't necessarily human rights angels either. And I'm talking about the country where I'm in right now, which is the United (laughs) States. I mean, I I live on the West Coast, where up and down the West Coast, we see a humanitarian crisis in plain sight known as homelessness. You know, I'm out there every week volunteering in Portland where I live, but there's no amount of volunteering that's going to take care of this. The structure needs to be changed, not to mention Guantanamo, not to mention the prison system that is racialized and horrific in the United States. We, you know, we're number one, if you will, when it comes to prisons. So, you know, we have our human rights problems too. And China's making a meal of it. And they have been coming back at places like the United States saying that we're hypocritical. And that's true. Um, but I do believe that nevertheless, one needs to stand up and shout about these human rights abuses because the global spotlight will descend on China and Beijing in specific for these Olympics. 
And we should be talking about these issues. There's no question about it. Well, the diplomatic uh, boycott that the U.S. announced recently and Australia and I'm, I'm assuming UK, Germany and perhaps other Western countries will, will likely follow. Would that have any significant impact over it or it was just basically brushed off by the uh, uh, Xi Jinping and his administration? Yeah, well, first of all, it has been interesting to see the countries that have jumped on board. One country that has not is France, and it doesn't look like they will jump on board. And guess what? They're hosting the next Olympics in 2024. <laughs> That's so they right. have a extra incentive to stay in the good graces of the International Olympic Committee. Where it's headed, I'm not exactly sure. Um, we'll have to see about that. Will it have an effect? Well, it is already sort of having an effect in the sense that more and more news outlets are now talking about human rights abuses in the country. And after all, that kind of was partly the goal to shine a spotlight on that reality. I think the other goal was to try to prevent uh, sports washing from happening in China and Beijing and, you know, let using the mega event to try to launder human rights sins. And so when you have all these leaders come from around the world for all these grin and grip photo ops, it sort of lends an air of legitimacy to what's happening inside of the country. And that won't happen, at least not with all diplomats. And so plenty of people, though, are still going to be there. I mean, the United Nations has announced that they plan to attend. Um, the leader of Russia, Vladimir Putin, has announced that he's going to attend. Lots mm -hmm. of countries will attend. I mean, let's not forget that thanks to the Belt and Road Initiative, China has a lot of friends out there. They've mm -hmm. provided an alternative in terms of the development model to the United States. And when you look at some polls across the world, global polls, they're asked who the, the world is asked, who is the biggest threat in the world right now? It's not China, according to the world. I mean, it's the United States. I mean, we have a military that's 10 times uh, the next sure. uh, spending, 10 times uh, all the other countries, uh, you know, combined in, in recent years. And so we've got military bases around the world. China has three military bases around the world. We have like 800, the United States government does. And so, mm -hmm. you know, those things are well known around the world. And I guess as we kind of move toward the Olympics, I'll be really interested to see if we have a little bit more of a frank conversation in the United States about these issues. What I'm saying to you right now will probably very rarely eke its way into mainstream yeah. discussions of these topics, in right. part because, you know, we have to operate under the condition of concision there. You have to be very concise, succinct, stick to the script, whereas we can spread out a little bit, guys, here and have a little deeper conversation. Um, but those are the kind of things that I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye out for as we move closer to Beijing. One thing that uh, you mentioned briefly also, too, was the, the uh, treatment of the Uyghurs uh, in China. Uh, it's something that... Uh, that's been used and been mentioned by the Biden administration in regards to Biden. They're not sending a delegation to uh, China for the Olympics. But um, one thing that we've known about NBC over the years, uh, Dr. Boykoff, is that the fact that NBC will gloss over these issues, especially the last time they did the Olympics, they didn't really discuss human rights issues either uh, when the Olympics were uh, held in China in 2008. Do we expect any type of coverage of this uh, during the Olympics uh, when we see, when we uh, watch, uh, or do we uh, going to see someone like Mary Carillo say, say, hey, look, look how wonderful the pandas are? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that's a great question, Ken. And it's a big one. I mean, just to step back before I try to address it, you know, the, the context is that NBC is a massive donor, if you will, to the International Olympic Committee. Television broadcast money comprises 73% of the International Olympic Committee's revenue, 73%, yep. wow. with another 18% coming from their corporate sponsors, also known as their worldwide partners, Alibaba, Coca-Cola, yes. etc. 
And so, you know, the International Olympic Committee and NBC have a deal going through through the early 2030s. And so they have a long term interest in making sure that the Olympics does not transmogrify into a toxic property. And to do that, they probably will do quite a bit of what you're talking about, Ken, is which is to put a, a happy face on the situation. And, you know, when you look back at 2008, there were actually edicts delivered to local domestic press about what they could and could not cover. Back in 2008, it was you could not cover Falun Gong, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you could not cover uh, protests that might eventuate around the Beijing yeah. Olympics. You could not uh, cover the, the torch relay, which was heavily protest as it made its way around the world. And so thinking ahead to the coverage of NBC, it actually will be really important. Will they just shimmy past human rights violations? Part of that depends on what happens on screen. Part of that depends on what these athletes do or don't do. And I think that in a way takes us back to your original question, which was about Peng Shui, the tennis player. And, you know, one thing that's really important about that situation is that the International Olympic Committee somehow, even though the World Tennis Association couldn't do it, got a 30 minute phone call with her. And after that 30 minute video call decided, hey, guess what? Everything's just totally fine. And if you slow down for a second, you think about it. That is ridiculous that on a 30 minute video call that you could tell about somebody's well-being or not. There are so many reasons why that's ridiculous. Uh, we can count the ways until we're blue in the face here. But it's a, it's a message very directly to athletes who might wish to speak out in Beijing about issues. And it basically the message is the International Olympic Committee does not have your back and is perfectly willing to run political interference for Beijing when push mm -hmm. comes to shove. Sure. It obviously had the back of Beijing and, and China more generally over the interests of this tennis player. And, you know, there have been some athletes who look to be Beijing bound, who've been outspoken. And after all, like you must talk about every single week on this show, we're living in the athlete empowerment era where more and more athletes are feeling comfortable speaking out in yep. socially conscious ways. Right. And, you know, Michaela Schifrin, who's uh, Beijing bound, is, has been talking about how the International Olympic Committee has put them in a really tough spot, athletes. Mm -hmm. And so, hey, if somebody does speak out, the question is, will they get the protection from the International Olympic Committee that they surely deserve? Um, mm -hmm. That's, again, an open question and a scary question for athletes that are going to Beijing. Absolutely. You know, Ken is a Taiwanese-American and I'm a Japanese-American. So the, this issue have a, you know, somewhat of a strong uh meaning to both of us uh considering you know uh, we saw the tokyo olympics this past summer uh which you were highly critical of and for reasons obviously with the covid and uh the japanese government from the time that they were awarded this uh it was supposed to be a a sign of a recovery in the tohoku area which is north of japan when the massive earthquake uh, knocked the uh, uh, the nuclear uh, power plant that many were concerned concerned that it was another second coming of Chernobyl, but then all of a sudden that went away and then it became a somewhat of a, a sign of overcoming COVID, which we're still dealing with this uh, uh, you know pandemic uh, two years in a row now. I'm just curious. Is IOC obviously are in total cahoots with you know uh, countries like China and Japan, uh, for the lack of better words, using it for propaganda purposes. And it seems like uh, you know jokingly that the Olympics, both summer and uh, and winter, are going to be held a lot more times, pretty much between 
Japan and China going forward. Hmm. Is, what do you say is the turning point when IOC became such a, you know, uh, as a corrupt organization as they are known now? And is there any remedy for, you know, fixing this organization? Wow. Yeah, that's a, a really important set of questions. And Stephen, I'm glad you mentioned Tokyo because there are vital lessons about the International Olympic Committee when we look back at Tokyo. After all, you'll remember in the lead into the Tokyo Olympics, more than 70, in some cases, more than 80% of the population in local polls in Japan did not want the Olympics to come because of COVID, mm -hmm. because it was an under-vaccinated population at the time. And they were rightly fearful of importing a bunch of people that could be bring COVID with them to the right. country. And yet the IOC rammed ahead. I mean, even the prime minister, Yoshihide Suga, had to stand in front of his, his people and admit that he did not actually have the power to cancel the games, even if he wanted to. This is the elected official in the country, very high level, the prime minister, for goodness sakes. And that's because the yes. International Olympic Committee writes the contracts, the host city contract in ways that gives them the power to cancel the games. I mean, Tokyo was an absolute mess even before COVID. It went four times over budget. It was supposed to yep. cost $7.3 billion. It was closer to $30 billion. It brought in facial recognition systems, which will be normalized in the wake of the games, which are problematic in terms of race and, and identification and other elements, civil liberties. It uh, kicked people out of their homes. When I was in Tokyo, I met two women who were actually displaced by both the 1964 and the 2020 Olympics. Wow. And, they, and, and it was a working class uh, social housing that got decimated to make way for an Olympic venue. So like 300 sure. families got kicked out. That's just par for the Olympic course. And finally, what you mentioned, Stephen, it's really important, is the greenwashing that happened. Talking a big green game, it's going to help us recover from the triple whammy earthquake, tsunami, and, and yeah. nuclear meltdown that you referenced. But then that just kind of went out the window after a while. And, and in fact, yeah. the people that I interviewed in Japan said that the problem was actually that the Olympics exacerbated and slowed down the problems in Fukushima Prefecture because, because a lot of the cranes and other necessary materials that, that to recover were brought to Tokyo to get ready for the Olympics. And so that, you know, just as background, that takes us to the question, like, what would it take actually to, well, how far does this go back? I, I would say it goes back to the inception of the Olympics, the problems, the corruption. I mean, there's illegal corruption and there's legalized corruption. And I think that you see both in colors in, in the Olympic movement. And so if we go all the way back to the beginning of the Olympics, they were pretty corrupt from the outset. I mean, they brought together, this guy who was a plucky French aristocrat whose dream it was to revive the Olympics started a little group called the International Olympic Committee, basically a collection of dukes and counts and other aristocrats like him who leaned on political power brokers to make the games happen. They actually underbid on the Olympics, said they were only going to cost so much money, the first ones in Athens, and they cost a whole lot more. And some rich guy came through, George Averoff, and gave a bunch of money to make those Olympics happen. So, I mean, even the very first Olympics was built on, on a bed of lies in certain respects. And shimmying forward to um, 1936, the, the Olympics in Berlin that Hitler used as a trampoline for his power to invade mm -hmm. Europe in the immediate wake of, of those games. I mean, they, they knew what was happening there in you know, way before the Olympics happened, the International Olympic Committee did, and they stood idly by to make sure that the Olympics kept going. And, you know, there's just so many examples of Olympic corruption in the modern era. I know a lot of your viewers will be familiar with the Salt Lake City bid scandal uh, around the Salt Lake City Winter Olympics in 2002. But even four years before that in Nagano in Japan, 
there was apparently incredible corruption. And what I, what I mean is bribery there, bribing IOC members to get those Olympics. But we don't know the full extent of it because they actually incinerated their records. So we have no idea, you know, historian's nightmare. They actually incinerated the records around the Nagano Olympics. And so, yeah. I mean, the, as the Olympics become bigger and bigger and bigger and more money is sloshing through the system, we can only expect that there will be corruption. And that is because the International Olympic Committee is the most pervasive yet least accountable sports body in the world. There are just not leverage points to get a hold of this corruption. I mean, even the ethics um, committee within the International Olympic Committee isn't independent. It reports to the International Olympic Committee. I mean, it's it's basically a joke. I'm sorry to say to the mm -hmm. people that are serving on it, but it's basically a joke. If it were serious, it would be independent. It'd be people outside the organization that have the power to levy penalties on the international organization when it doesn't follow through, but that is not happening. And, you know, that is why I think right now, one of the best things that the Olympics could do would be to disband the international Olympic committee. They mm -hmm. are incorrigible. You know, I'm a social scientist. I'm just going off the evidence that's out there and they are incorrigible. And I mean, if we were in charge, we couldn't do much worse if we just put us three in charge in terms of corruption. <laughs> I mean, we're at least not going to just embezzle a bunch of funds and, and bribe our way to picking the next host of the Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of good people out there that could do a much better job, including some of those socially conscious athletes that we were referencing before. Sure, sure. So, you know, I it's been a slow road for me to get to this point, to be honest. And I'm almost like a little embarrassed now, like looking back at some of the things I wrote, including an essay in 2014, I wrote for the New York Times, they invited me to write kind of one of those like magic wand essays. Like if you had a magic wand, how would you fix the Olympics? And I took them up on it in good faith. And I like laid out what I thought they could do to fix the Olympics. Well, guess what? They ignored everything I said. So, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and I mean, you know, I guess I understand better now, you know, why they would maybe do that. You know, they don't, I don't think they have a lot of uh, respect for my viewpoints and opinions, but you know, here we are. What is it going to take? I mean, um, we saw what happened with FIFA there was a, a, a long investigation with from the Justice Department, the FBI, and there were there was some. It, it took a, a massive cleaning house of the the top people like Sepp Blatter uh, to bring in some new blood. Can we even uh, hope to even see something like that with the IOC? Yeah, I mean, I love the question, but the fact that we are like saying, "Hey, look how good FIFA is compared to the IOC." I know, right, right. <laughs> I mean, it's a low bar. Yes, it's a low yeah, bar. Yeah, very low bar, Steve. Very exactly. low bar. Exactly. And I hear what you're saying, guys are saying, but like it's a low bar, and and the IOC can't even tiptoe over it, right? Like they yeah. are worse than FIFA right now. Yes. Like they legitimately are worse than FIFA. So, Ken, I think you're right that to really get to the root of this, you would have to have some kind of outside power, like the U.S. Justice Department in the case of FIFA, to actually get involved. And you know, we have some ongoing cases right now regarding corruption and bribery around the 2016 Olympics in Rio. There was just the head of the Brazilian, former head of the Brazilian Olympic Committee, a guy named Carlos Nuzman, who was yes. convicted of bribery and corruption around the 2016 games. Mm -hmm. He's appealing, of course, so we'll see what happens there. There's also a French, ongoing French prosecution involving a guy named Lamine Diak, who just passed away last week. And uh, Lamine Diak, we used to be the head of athletics. It used to be called IAAF. Yep. But now it's called World Athletics. It oversees track and field at the Olympics. Yes. And basically, he, he was taking bribes. He was shunting bribes uh, to get votes from different friends of his. And also, by the way, allowing people who failed their doping test to continue to compete if they just paid him a little on the side. And so, you know, mm -hmm. these are all coming out inside of the Olympic circle. 
And yet the Olympics are still are becoming even less transparent. So one thing that FIFA did, for instance, that is, I think, a step in the right direction is now when you vote for the host city in FIFA, your vote is public. And mm. so like if you pick an obviously subpar bid, people are going to wonder like, wait, why did that dude just vote for them? They are obviously a much worse bid here. Did they get a bribe? They'll kind of start to open up questions. The IOC still does secret bidding. And not only that, they don't even allow the full membership anymore to weigh in on these bids. Instead of responding to the criticism that was being leveled by people like us uh, around the bidding system of the Olympics, they didn't uh, make it transparent. They actually made it smaller. So instead of the around 100 members of the International Olympic Committee that used to vote on what who was going to be the next host, now they've dwindled it down to around a dozen or so for the Winter Olympics and another dozen for the Summer Olympics. I mean, this just makes it easier to bribe these folks. There's less of them to bribe, you know. And so, I mean, they've just made a mockery of the process, just like they've long made a mockery of democracy. And it will take something of an outside source to really try to finally sort this thing out. Mm hmm. Absolutely. You know, you brought up about the investigation part, you know, uh, Japan has had its own issues, prob uh, you know, with the, um, as you mentioned, IOC uh, overruling the uh, Japanese government. Um, and Thomas Buck, the chairman, obviously has been a, uh, a long, long uh, public enemy within the uh, Japanese public and, and within Japan, probably for for a foreseeable future. And Dick Pound, obviously, the second in command, has been um, another uh, a public figure within IOC that has received a lot of criticism. Um, what will it take for them uh, to be removed other than, you know, just the investigation? Is it just basically that uh, we have to wait for the uh, investigation by U.S., French, and uh, other countries to you know, fully get into it? Or do you see that uh, either Bach or Pound being forced into resignation uh, down the road? Hmm. Well, first of all, I'm glad you mentioned, Stephen, what happened in Japan with Bach, uh, with Pound, and with John Coates also, who is the Australian. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Sorry about that. I forgot. About I've that. never seen anything like that in all my days of covering mm -hmm. the Olympics. And I have a focus a lot of times on activism around the Olympics. And I've never seen particular members of the Olympic International Olympic Committee targeted with such precision, precision and such venom uh, by mm -hmm. the general public, but also by activists. And that didn't budge the IOC no, 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 that didn't change anything. And so no, no, no. I, I just really I don't think, you know, at this point, I, I, and Richard Pound will probably age out here. I mean, he's the longest serving member of yeah. the International Olympic Committee. And some of the stuff that he's been saying recently in, a, in an interview just yesterday uh, with a German journalist, he admitted uh, or at least he claimed that yes. he had no understanding whatsoever of what is going on with Uyghurs in China. Like totally disinterested. There is so mm -hmm. much information, so many reports, satellite images, eyewitness testimony. And he just says, I know nothing about it. Like that shows a willful gullibility and just, you know, uh, an inexorable willingness to just go along with power. And so yes. this guy's not going to excuse himself. He's probably going to age out of the system yeah. before, you know, anything could really happen to him. And in a weird way, I sort of want Richard Pound around because 
of all the people at the International Olympic Committee, at least he'll talk to the press. I mean, I actually got to debate him one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, to his credit, he was willing to debate me in public about the issues around the Olympics in, in Beijing. The rest of them are very tight-lipped and they're not mm -hmm. exactly jumping up and down to engage in that kind of conversation. And so what would we do without that guy? Like he's the one guy that kind of actually gives us a glimpse of the reality behind the thick scrim that, that shrouds the Olympics and doesn't let us to actually see what's going on at the IOC. Yeah, it felt like for me, even living in the States, watching it from far apart, I felt like, you know, the Jap Japan and Japanese public were kind of like being punished into hosting the Olympics that nobody ever wanted it. And the sentiment uh, has really, really soured. Um, you know, as somebody who has lived in Japan for a long time, you know, Olympics was always something about like a, a festival, you know, like a, the whole country really, really gets into it, you know. Even even if the athletes don't even qualify into the uh, the medal rounds, it, it was just some sort of a, a mass hysteria of some sorts, you know, having uh, witnessed. And then you, they're also in the running for 2030 Sapporo Winter Olympics. And, um, you know, I was reading a tabloid that I read, a Japanese tabloid that I read on a daily basis that IOC, basically, they're really, really hurting for cash right now. And, you know, the pandemic just kind of made it, uh, even a lot more worse. So IOC will continue to maybe be in cahoots with uh, China and then Japan, two countries that really, you know, China has obviously, it's their own problem with human rights record. Japan obviously doesn't have a, a bad of a human rights record, but when it comes to, you know, uh, women's uh, equality and advancement, they're always at the very, very low or at the near bottom compared to the other countries. So countries like that will always, you know, be willing to do business with IOC. Uh, and IOC will obviously will be in, you know, making bed together with uh, such a, you know, lack of shame, in my opinion. And it's just kind of sad to see where the uh, Olympics, as well as FIFA, you know, with, uh, with the Qatar 2022 with their problems. It seems like these organizations just doesn't seem to have their priorities straighten out and it just sometimes makes me feel angry as a sports fan in general you know yeah i mean and actually the the athletes are what everybody tunes into the world cup and the olympics to watch and at this point because of the malfeasance around the international olympic committee these olympians are essentially now human shields for the IOC. And, and that is additionally sad. In, in addition to everything that you just rightly and correctly pointed out, Stephen, is that athletes, many of whom go into debt to try to realize their Olympic dream and never get out of that debt, even especially here in the United States, where like GoFundMe pages are actually quite common for Olympians because mm -hmm. our funding structure is so different and so weak compared to other countries. And, you know, you have other athletes that are experiencing abuse just in today's nudes. The gymnasts got a settlement from the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee in, in the, to the tune of millions. I mean, so, you know, there is a lot of bad news around the Olympics right now. And there are more and more people around the world that are having the same concerns that you are that are wondering really if it's worth it at this point anymore. I mean, essentially Tokyo was a really expensive soundstage for the International Olympic Committee to continue to have its money spigot wide open. The people of Japan didn't really get much out of it at all. They couldn't even attend the Olympics. They could stand outside the stadium, 
Um, but, you know, all these people who are basically barnacles on the Olympic ship, so-called consultants and so on, who basically I can't figure out what exactly they do. But no, I don't a lot of it's probably pretty shady, you know, looking at the records of some of these individuals. They all were able to go to the Olympics and sit there and watch the opening ceremony and tweet it out and attack people like us that might raise legitimate questions about it. And they, you know, they just say on the inside, we have all the information. You don't understand how it works out there. But I think the writing is really on the wall at this point and the olympics are in a slow motion crisis and the double whammy of tokyo the way that played out alongside beijing and we'll have to all keep track of what's going on and stay in touch about that yeah that could put a dent in the olympic machine if anything but you know the olympic organizers in lausanne switzerland the international olympic committee they're just hoping to hold on basically get mm -hmm. through beijing get their way to paris and then italy and then Los Angeles, and they think once they get there, everything is going to be all right. I think they're wrong about that. There's a burgeoning anti-Olympics movement in Paris and certainly a vibrant anti-Olympics movement in Los Angeles. Right. There's a really smart and savvy group called No Olympics LA that I think your, your viewers should definitely check out if they're interested in that topic, No Olympics LA. And they're not going away anytime soon either. And they have tremendous talent on their team. I mean, they have people from Hollywood, like movie producers and directors who've like made stuff for Netflix. I mean, these people are like super talented in Los Angeles and they are invested in the fight and they're not going away and they've made it transnational. So they're speaking out on all these issues, whether it's Tokyo, whether it's Beijing, Paris, there's now an international group of activists that are fighting against the Olympics. Not unlike the group, the international Olympic committee that travels around the Olympics to enjoy it and make money off it. Well, professor, uh, Jules Boykoff, um, who's, expertise is in this uh in the olympics and also a former soccer player as well and uh uh written books about this we really appreciate it and uh we're gonna have you back and uh as we get closer to the uh, china olympics and uh, discuss more of these issues um thank you so much for joining us tonight all right thank you, you guys. appreciate it here all right see you down the road take care thank, thank you, you we'll much. see you again soon all right and the uh double a team will continue after this the coaching by both Coach Griffin and Dylan in youth football, but that had just ended. It was Dylan's season had just ended, and when Griffin passed away, um, and so then, I, as I said, my mom she had um, prior to Griffin passing away though uh, on it was a Mother's Day actually the day after Mother's Day that very year, she found out she had stage four uterine cancer. And um, so she survived an, an, uh, just a lethal um, surgery where they removed a lot. Um, and so she somehow survived that only to eight months later pass away. Um, and so there was kind of a rough time there where for me, it felt like everybody was going, nobody was coming. Yeah. And um, and so. Uh, yeah, I, I that led me to a, a serious, serious bout of depression to the point where um, in August of 2015, I actually shot myself and in the head, underneath the chin, and um, with the intention of not being here. Uh, and so as I look back now, um, everything I didn't have to live for, I now have to live for. And so um, it, it was just a period of time where it, life was tough. 
and it was once you get down what my experience is once i got down that low um it didn't feel like it was ever going to end and uh unless i ended it well we're back with another version another um Segment of the AT double A team, as, as you can see, Stephen is walking through his house, uh, walking Sorry. through his apartment. <laughs> <laughs> My apologies. That's okay. Um, just uh, just uh, talk briefly. We uh, before we uh, had to bring in the Professor Boykin about Tom Brady uh, in our last segment, uh, Stephen. Um, again, um, the Buffalo Bills had a great chance to uh, defeat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers yesterday, even though they were down by 17 points in the fourth quarter, great comeback by them to tie the game. Yeah. But as you, as I mentioned to you uh, before we brought professor Boykin in a uh, Boykoff in, when you have a chance to get Tom Brady and defeat Tom Brady, you really have to do it. You can't give him an extra chance, an extra period. Otherwise mm -hmm. he's going to take it. Yeah, you know, Tom Brady has had their numbers uh, dating back to the Patriot days, obviously. They faced yeah. each other twice. Um, he had their numbers. And, uh, you know, even in Tampa, you know, they, they found a way to win uh, yesterday. And, and and as I was saying, Tampa, uh, Buffalo is in real serious trouble right now. And um, I think since they lost to Tennessee on a Monday night, they have had somewhat of a uneven performances and now they're just trending really really downwards right now and certainly the week before on a monday night you know actually monday a week ago you know they played in the uh, uh some of the worst conditions i've ever seen oh yeah terrible. Uh, yeah they way they ran the ball 46 times and passed the ball three times that is the patriots yep and then the buffalo um, after the press conference, some of the players were going after the reporters, and McDermott was also very, very testy. Um, you know, it's, it seems like, you know, things are a bit uh, unraveling, like I said, in Buffalo. And, you know, I think right now uh, Patriots will probably win that division, and Buffalo right now mm -hmm. is uh, looking more and more like just trying to get into the playoffs and see if they can get hot. Mm -hmm. That's the only hope that I see with the Buffalo Bills right now. Absolutely. And uh, I, I'm very skeptical. I heard some national pundits say, well, they found themselves against the, uh, the, uh, against the, the, the Bucks yeah. yesterday. And maybe they, that this is something that they can build upon. Well, it's kind of late to build upon right now. You got it, it. It's either, you know, you are who you are, as Bill Parcells used to say. And mm -hmm. if you're a seven and six team, you're a seven and six team. So um, that's what the Buffalo Bills are right now. Uh, they're sure. in second place in the division. Uh, the Patriots, we all didn't expect them to be the number one seed at this point when we was, when we started this show. But um, sure. here they are. So um, it's, it's one of those things, Stephen, that uh, it's just one of those things where sometimes um, – Something old is new again. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I also want to touch about uh, the disaster that is the um, the Jacksonville Jaguars. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, reports came out about Urban Meyer questioning his assistance, you know, and their track record 
you know, calling himself the winner and berating his own assistants for not doing enough, which is which is somewhat uh, another chapter into a disaster that is Urban Meyer. And, you know, I live here in Columbus area right now for work. And, uh, you know, Urban's a legend, obviously, with the uh, Ohio State University. Uh, he has a restaurant not too far away from where I am. You know, it's a it's a place where, you know, we all know the photo of uh, Urban Meyer getting a lap dance from a young lady. <laughs> this is not a joke. That's that's his. Oh, that's, that really happened. That really happened. It really happened. Yes, it really happened. And, um, you know, that's not what you want to hear from uh, a leader of any kind. You know, that's that's not how leadership works. And, no. you know, for for Urban, you know, everywhere he's been to controversy has followed him. You remember the Aaron Hernandez uh, murder scandal when he was with University of Florida. Yep. He left. He, he, he took the Ohio State job, but he ended up abruptly leaving after one of his assistants was arrested for or in charge with domestic violence. And then, uh, you know, he took another TV job and then he took the Jacksonville Jaguars job for for reasons that I don't know now, to be honest, he has I, no. I, I can only think it was for money. He doesn't yes. need money, but I don't know. Maybe no, it was no, for no. money. I, I don't know either. I'm sure every day he's probably thinking about with regrets and remorse of having taken this job that he has a that his heart's not in it, and no, he's no. not committed to. And then you have these types of informations being leaked out by whether it's his his assistants. Or even from his people trying to get out of it, it's it's a uh, it, it, it it you know it's a similar situation with uh, what the Bears fans like myself are dealing with Matt Nagy. Uh, why delay the inevitable? You know, it, it somehow one side has to budge in and say, you know what, this ain't gonna work. You know, yeah. end the, let's end the the misery and suffering. Yeah, I, I don't uh, – unfortunately, the Jacksonville owner is a hands-off guy. and He's hoping that this thing will work out and uh, work out in the end. Uh, I don't see the Urban's going to get fired, at least at this point. I think he'll probably get fired at the end of the season. Um, we've seen this with college coaches who are ill-equipped to come into the NFL. Probably mm -hmm. the best example of that was Nick Saban, believe it or not, when he went to the Miami Dolphins – was ill-equipped to handle it and then just left but to go to the Alabama Crimson Tide where obviously no one remembers him right now as a Miami Dolphins coach. But a guy who uh, – uh, another example uh, – an example of the opposite, a guy who was prepared for it, of course, was uh, Pete Carroll. Well, he had some experience in the NFL, went to USC, won a national championship, and then had to go to Seattle because of eventually some recruiting violations that were happening at USC. But – there's a guy who could coach basically on every level and can win. Sure. Um, as far as urban and we seen it with Steve Spurrier also uh, just because you're a great college coach doesn't necessarily mean you're going to succeed at the pro level. Sure. What worked in the college level isn't going to fly with pro with uh, guys who are making much more money than you. Mm -hmm. uh, a quarterback who is probably uh, doesn't want to get yelled at but yet you're yelling at him and that's not going to fly in the national football league. So um, urban, I don't think is good. Is gonna, as, uh, as, 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 as was said uh, once in the, uh, uh, the NFL stands for not for long and yeah. it's going to be happening for uh, urban Meyer. Um, 
True. Matt Rule is also struggling with uh, Carolina down there. You know, he keeps switching back and forth between P.J. Walker and uh, Cam right. Newton. And, um, you know, Joe Brady got uh, uh, got canned, obviously, uh, for the offensive struggle. But uh, Matt Rule is obviously just as uh, responsible for the, uh, the, the mess that they're in. Right. And, um, you know, I mentioned Ryan Day earlier when I was talking about the Bears, Trace Armstrong. Uh, president of uh, Athletes First uh, Agency that represents coaches and uh, uh, personnel men. Um, Jason Lacanfora reported that uh, he will take the job and Ryan Day is a set hire. Um, obviously, Ryan Day has had a couple of years, I believe, uh, being a quarterback coach in San Francisco and Philadelphia. But that's as far as I can tell about his NFL experience, only two years. Mm-hmm. So... Whether it's the Bears or somebody else, um, you know, uh, they 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 might want to think twice about hiring these uh, hot college coaches uh, because uh, Meyer and uh, Rule certainly does not help the cause at all. And the only one that really seems to be equipped to handle uh, is Jim Hava. You know, obviously his stock is at an all-time high right now, having taken Michigan into the uh, you know college football playoffs, and if the Bears are willing to call him and offer, you know whatever he wants, including personnel control that he fought with uh, San Francisco and abrupt left abruptly, it will be interesting to see. You know if Haba really wants this job, and if the Bears are willing to meet whatever the uh, asking price is, it could happen. You know, uh, is is Jim Haba the number one uh, candidate for every Bears fans? No. I think a lot of Bears fans are very much split on him about his time with uh, Michigan up until this year and then how he fizzled out in San Francisco. So it will be interesting to see, you know, um, Myers gone. What, what happens to Matt Rule? Well, Day and Haba jump ship. Um, well, the NFL – uh, is, 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 is ever going to consider college coaches again? You know, this is going to be a very interesting off season for sure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, as it's, it's uh, we're got to ready to go to our off season. So, uh, Steven, uh, this is going to be the last show for us for 2021. Um, this has been, I believe our fifth show, but it's been a or lot six, of fun. more like six, I believe fifth I, or six. A six yeah, show. Sure. So um, I've lost count, but uh, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> Me too. But uh, the, the fact that we started this in September and uh, we're now uh, going into December and uh, we're going to be going our next show in January. So I want to wish you a uh, happy holidays. And I want to wish all of our, our viewers who have come on board with us over the last uh, three, three or four months, to, to wish you a very happy holidays as well. Thank you so much, Ken, uh, for working with me uh, this year. Um, I really like the direction uh, this show is going. And with the support of uh, Aldo, I think uh, our show has made such a strong stride. And, um, you know, we, we, we have to thank our guests who come on to our show uh, every other week. And, uh, you know, we're definitely going to be continuing to uh, reach out to AAPI people who work in the industry, as well as uh, those, you know, not necessarily AAPI uh, people, 
but people like uh, Dr. Boykoff, uh, Jeff Perlman, among others, who are a strong believer in our cause and believe in the uh, strong diversity uh, that is needed in the industry. So we hope to be that uh, engine. And uh, next year, uh, we're definitely uh, hoping to uh, do a lot more and uh, keep it going for sure. We'd like to thank our guests tonight uh, once again, Shahan Zorajara uh, from CBS, a great college football writer, and again, uh, Professor Jules Boykoff, who, who joined us uh, from Oregon and talking about the Olympic movement and a lot of things that are going wrong. We'll definitely have both of those gentlemen back, and we look forward to seeing you after the new year um, in 2022. For Stephen Nagishi, I'm Ken Fang. For our producer, Aldo Gandia, our, our fantastic person behind the mic and uh, behind the scenes, thanks to you for watching. And have a great, uh, great, have a great Christmas, great Kwanzaa. And uh, for those of you who celebrated, wanted to wish those who celebrated uh, a happy Hanukkah from earlier this month. And we will see you in 2021. Thank you.